You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, I just jumped off the podcast with Andre Mulyar. Andre is the gigabrained who shipped GPT for all and co-founded Atlas AI. He gave the world the power to run a large language model, similar to your interactions with ChatGPT or Google's Bard, locally on your own laptop and trained using your own data. He's the definition of opening up tech to the world, and I couldn't pass up the opportunity to have him on RAI series to explore the power of AI and the overlap with crypto. In this convo, we spoke on the competitive benefits of running a local, private, large language model on your own laptop with your own data versus using a state-of-the-art model like ChatGPT without your confidential data. We spoke on the impact of AI. And as a TLDR, Andre does not believe LLMs lead to terminators, and he thinks the idea of everyone losing their jobs is very overblown. We both agree that Sam Altman sounding the alarm bells is just to create a regulatory moat around OpenAI as well. We then went deeper and Andre shared his most important impact that he thinks is coming to AI, which is embeddings, or ways for computers to understand data semantically. An example is when you see pictures of your friends automatically grouped in your iPhone's pictures app, but giving this level of context and data to AI and models everywhere. We closed on the crypto AI overlap and Andre shared his take that data provenance will be the core area of overlap. He thinks the idea of giving people ownership and control over their data and potentially income that's used to train a model or an output would be super interesting. Let's dive into the conversation. Thanks for replying to my zillion DMs. I'm excited to have you. <laughs> it only took a zillion and one, right? <laughs> that is true. That is true. Well, tell us, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, man. You're super active on Twitter. You're sharing like the best information or some of the best information on AI that I've seen. I'd love to learn more about you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Andre, uh, co-founder, CTO of Nomic. Uh, what we do at Nomic is we really focus on building like tools to help AI be more explainable and accessible to people who aren't like AI experts or like AI engineers. Uh, so everything from like the models to the data, uh, from the data to the models, like GPT for all, for example. Um, that's kind of what I do uh, on like every day to day, just really focusing on making AI sort of more accessible to people who uh, don't or aren't like experts in it. It's pretty cool. It seems like AI's gotten pretty accessible, right? Like I can use ChatGPT, I can use Bard, I can use plugins. What, what exactly are you, are you trying to solve to make it more accessible? Not for the user, but for the developer? Yeah, so AI in the sense that there's interfaces that allow sort of completely non-technical, like people who have maybe never even programmed before to access the outputs of the technology. So in that level of accessibility, yeah, something like ChatGPT enables that. Uh, but there's many other kinds of, let's say, AI systems uh, that are just like text generation coming out of the uh, like a large language model or an image being generated by a model like stable diffusion uh, that exist out there. And the sort of capabilities of everyday people to interact with the outputs of those systems is just kind of not there. Right now. Um, and what we're kind of doing at Novik is building this sort of like base layer of tooling that allow that to happen. So things like embeddings or allowing these like large language models that currently are house hosted on sort of closed closed source environments or behind like uh, the, in the in the clouds of companies like OpenAI and Anthropic to be able to run on like your machines so that you can own the data going into it. You can maybe even put sensitive data into it that you couldn't before. It's pretty cool. I think I saw recently that ChatGPT lets you now hide your your data, right? Like clear your history, not share your data. Yep. Do you think that kind of like cuts off the need for running a large language model locally and, and having privacy over your data? Or do you think they're I stealing mean, it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so like, I, I'm not one to, I don't want to go around accusing people. Uh, I think people judge you based on not what you do and you say, but what you have done. 
Uh, and there has been many cases uh, before that uh, sort of signify that maybe the best place to hold your data isn't the servers of uh, OpenAI. Uh, obviously, you know, they're not, they're, they're, their intention is to have people as customers, not to steal people's data. But things have happened in the past that resulted in sort of bad situations. For instance, like, to give an example, um, Samsung engineers uh, were like loading their blueprints for chips into OpenAI's models and having them interact with it. And this is back in the day where OpenAI's policies were a little bit less clear as to what they do with your data. And then it turns out a few months later, OpenAI's new version of ChatGPT was outputting the multi-billion dollar chip blueprints that Samsung engineers had put Whoa. in. Right. God. Right. Right. So like, right. Yeah. So like, you know, if you're an employee at Samsung and you, you know, release those chip blueprints to somebody, what happens? Uh, well, you get fired and you probably get sued out for everything you're, you're worth. Uh, but if you're OpenAI, you know, it's just a news article. So there's a lack of trust there. Uh, but your question is like, what are, what are these things useful for? Uh, there's many there's many situations, uh, specifically like uh, in the industry, for instance, environments where compliance is key, uh, where you just can't send data uh, from like your servers. So you, any system that you put your data through has to be running on your server. So in like your cloud VPC or just like whatever uh, place where your like app or enterprise application is running. Um, that completely takes away the ability for large swaths like hospital systems um, banks, do you even have access to this technology? You can't use an LLM if you're a bank right now, unless you partner and pay big bucks to like one or two companies. Uh, and what we're trying to do with GPT for all is sort of like kind of flip that upside down. Uh, you can run your own large language models. They can be very useful. Uh, they can be run much, much more cheaply than you could if you were to send your data to like a third party service and get the outputs from them. It's pretty interesting. So I, I guess we'll start with GPT for all. We'll go into Nomic, and then we'll go into some interesting things you're, you're working on. Just to double down on the GPT for all side, what what was the selling point that got you interested to create the ability for people at home to run their own large language model? Is it the privacy aspect we're talking about now, or was it something else? I mean, it was a few things. So number one, uh, just like six months ago, doing this, uh, like six months ago, having a 13 billion parameter, like eight gigabyte file on your machine that contains weights that represent all of humanity's knowledge on the internet and running that on like your MacBook was not possible. Uh, so it's like a set of ingredients that existed all at the right time in like early March to enable it to happen. Uh, and also it was sort of like the shift in, I guess, rhetoric from all, all of the sort of big AI company, well-funded AI companies and sort of signified to the world, I would say that if people aren't actively working to take the technology that's being produced by these companies and make it more accessible. Uh, these companies will be the only ones that own the technology that's clearly revolutionizing the way people interact with information in the world. And that's just a scary world to live in. Uh, the exact example is like when the GPT-4 paper came out. Uh, so OpenAI actually from its inception was a company that released most of the work that uh, the GPT-2 uh, paper, the first the first model that they trained uh, and sort of publicly released out. Um, that model you can download. You can go online and download all 1 billion weeks of GPT-2. Uh, the model that they created for, um, in, for the model they created for uh, automatically transcribing audio into text that they also released. Uh, this was like a couple of years ago. Um, when it came to these larger models that are very expensive to train, uh, took a lot of capital to make these models exist. Um, and uh, when these models came around, uh, OpenAI basically decided that, hey, uh, there's a lot of business competition. We can't release these models out. Uh, you could use them. You could play with them. Uh, somebody who uh, just wanted to, for instance, like put data into the model and get and get the benefit from the model out could use it. But businesses weren't able to actually build applications over top of them unless you were willing to abide by like the terms and conditions or sort of like the 
uh, moral policies that have been baked into these mo- baked into these models. Uh, the GPT-4 paper, uh, when it came out, literally had a line that said, like, due to commercial constraints in the current ecosystem, something like this, uh, we will not be releasing any details about how these models are made, how the what, what data we used, who made them, you know, like any of this information. There's just a c- complete leap from what actually has been happening in the ML world in the last 20 years. Uh, in ML, everything has been open sourced in the past 20 years. Um, and also just sort of like the kind of, uh, the name open AI, right, implies like you are you are doing things openly. <laughs> um, so that was sort of like the, the sort of impetus. Uh, it was very clear that if people weren't going to work on it, um, hey, you wouldn't have these technologies exist. And also me, my team, uh, my co-founder, um, actually people we were working with, we had, we're kind of in a unique position to be able to actually enable this technology to be accessible uh, in, on, in like a local manner. Uh, so me and my co-founder, we actually met at an AI conference a few years ago called NERPS. Um, this is like one of the biggest AI conferences. Uh, and we both had spent some time, even before like OpenAI started releasing like GPT-3, uh, working on LLMs. It's like 2019. So we kind of knew like the secret sauce you needed to kind of put together to train large language models that were high quality. Um, and uh, we knew we knew how to make these things. We knew that it wasn't impossible. It didn't actually cost the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that they claimed that you needed to spend in research and R&D uh, to actually make these models possible. Uh, and so we did it. <laughs> That that, that 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 was that was that was the impetus. Uh, we knew we knew how to do it. The ingredients were right. It was it it's, it seemed like the world was going in a direction where people wouldn't have access to this technology otherwise. Uh, I'm not saying if we if, if we didn't do it, somebody else would have. Uh, but we also sort of the the, the, the time was right as as with anything that's created, right? <laughs> it is it is wild that you said that the 13 billion parameter model fits on your hard drive and encompasses all like human knowledge on the internet. Like conceptually, that is really hard to understand. Yeah, I mean, but the, the actual it is what's crazy about like um, neural networks is they're like these objects that compress information, right? What they do is they sort of they sort of like yeah they gather and gra- they they gather together all the sort of similarities between all the data that they see and they find a representation of the data that sort of is a compressed version of the data itself. It's insane that you can take all the information humanity's ever put on the internet and compress it into a file that's only like six gigabytes on your computer. That, that, that's literally insane. <laughs> yeah. No, that is wild. One of my more specific questions for you on the the LLM side is it seems like from the outside there's this push and pull, right? On the private running your own private LLM for a person for a business, you have access to a lot of unique proprietary data that you can feed and train this thing. On the other side, it seems like OpenAI, Google's Bard, like they're going to keep innovating on like the core, you know, call it algorithm or parameter size of the LLM to make them like what I believe is like ever powerful, right? Is there a trade-off here between wanting to use that prop data versus wanting to have access to, I guess, call it the best model? Or what What do you think there? Yeah, I mean, of course it's a trade-off. Like there is a place in the world for accessing AI models through APIs. Uh, the reality is like a model as powerful as GPT-4, uh, like a single model that is as universal and as powerful as GPT-4 uh, will likely never be able to run on your MacBook, for example. Models that can do subsets of the uh, capabilities that you get from a model like GPT-4 uh, will be able to run it on your Mac. They won't be able to do it. You might need multiple models to be able to encompass basically all the capabilities. Uh, but the thing is, when it comes to, for instance, like enterprise applications of this technology, like LLMs, that's not like a magic wand. You can't use it for everything. There are certain app enterprise applications for these where they're very, where they're very useful. Um, and the reality is, is that a lot of those applications can be solved by training your own LLM on your data and serving it yourself. Um, that's just 
that that, that, that is just a fact. Um, and this is just not even talking about all the actual like, like can can you legally take your data, your customers' data, and send it over right to a service? So just to drive home this example, like if I'm um, let's say Delphi, right? I'm writing a research report and I want to use uh, an AI assistant. Using OpenAI or ChatGPT would be cool, but if I were to train one on all of our past research, it would be more specific, more innovative, or? Um, so what it would be is it would be more personalized and knowledgeable and knowledgeable about the uh, data like, like that is specific to your company. Uh, so the model would be able to, say, be more factual about things that it says when you ask it specific questions about your organization. Uh, if you go in and just go to the chat GPT and ask it like a question about some internal document, it's never seen that data before. It's not going to be able to know it. Uh, you can go in and you can hand data over. Hand data over. They will trade you a model, uh, and you can use that model. Uh, it's very expensive. Um, it's uh, it's honestly like the way the world is going right now, uh, and the way the technology is progressing is it's it's becoming sort of a, a not needed thing. You can trade these models yourself, uh, and for and it's very cheap to do so. On the order of like hundreds of dollars if you have, if you have the data. Uh, and what's not there is sort of like the actual software layer to be able to serve them efficiently and uh, for for the, for the low prices that you'd want to be be competitive in pricing. For example, with uh, with OpenAI, that's what we're working towards. It's really cool. Are you um? How do you feel about the reception to to releasing GPT for all? Like, are you seeing people's lives change, businesses leap ahead? Are you seeing not as much usage as you expected? I mean, you release a pretty powerful tool to the world and you kind of, I think, gave it away, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not really giving it away. Uh, GPT for All was not the first LLM that was like this capable that was released out. Uh, GPT for All was the first sort of like full package of the LLM with the interface that people can go in and not having to be like a super technical programmer to be able to use. Um, and giving it away is, is a way to put it. Uh, but like one could say most of... Most of the technology you use every day was written on software that was given away. Uh, open source is this idea that when you write software, uh, the way for that software to actually be most impactful is if that software is able to be viewable and sort of interactable and audited by everyone. Um, like one of one of the, one of the big scary things is, for instance, with closed source AI models, is that it makes it very hard to audit them. You have to basically trust the trust and safety teams of the organizations that have the models. Uh, the contrast is with like open source systems is that you can actually have a lot of confidence that uh, they're doing what you want them to do because uh, you know everyone everyone has gone in and, and interacted with the system, seen the source code, uh, and, and and all of these. Things. So we're well off the script, but in a good way, and yeah. it's a good segue though into one of the questions we did have, which was you know OpenAI and Google are very close companies, right? You're you're on the literal opposite end of that spectrum. I'd be curious your thoughts here on like the open versus closed source model side. I mean, I kind of alluded to it in an earlier question, but I guess who wins is probably the wrong question, but maybe who offers the most innovative experience or you know, what attracts the most developer attention? I'm not sure what exactly the right question is, but I know that there's a battle between the two. Yeah, so look at the question is what happens, right? Like, like yeah. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess there's, there's two questions I would ask here. Uh, question number one, I think who wins is actually a valid question. Uh, and the answer to that is uh, they both win. Um, there, there is plenty, plenty, like when a technology emerges as sort of like groundbreaking and revolutionarily applicable to everything as a, like an LLM, 
uh, you know, it's it's not like you're 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 chopping on like you know a a, a small set of possible users, people who are going to use these systems, right? Uh, they can be used universally across many different applications. It's a it's it's a universal function that allows you to interact with computers, not by programming them, but by using human language, getting the computers to do what you want them to do. Um, and there's so many applications to that. Uh, there will be system, there will be projects and systems that are using uh, models behind APIs, closed source models. Uh, there will be projects and systems that are using models that run locally on your computer. Like I imagine in the next in the next decade, I imagine I I, I have been sent over uh, operating systems that have GPT for all models already baked into them. So you start up the computer and the model is, is already there. It's, it's baked in. Uh, calls to an LLM are going to be like as prolific as like Linux kernel system calls. So a Linux kernel is like the the base sort of like heart of a computer. And there's a couple operations that you can do that you can do to that heart of the computer. And calling an LLM, I think, is going to be one of them in the next in the next decade. Um, and the reality is, is like you just can't do those operations if you need to have the internet, right? Like there, there there's, there's with, with the technology is, is this transformative. There's many, many constraints of how it needs to be used, and just like having models that are hit behind APIs and closed source fashion just don't hit some of those constraints. You can't always have the internet, right? Like if you're lost in the jungle, you want to know what fruit to eat. Uh, there, there needs to be a, lo- a local LLM that runs as an internet to be to be to be to be a good. I I feel like I'd have more more issues if I was stuck on an island. But I mean, a local GPT model for that island would be pretty cool. That'd be so. It, it sounds like from what you're saying, the the impact that you're contextualizing is large. You're talking about AI being embedded into our everyday lives, into operating systems. You know, there's been a lot of give and take on whether AI is super inflationary, very deflationary, whether it destroys all of our jobs or it lets developers write 10x more code, right? And from my perspective, I'm seeing so many startups, it's hard to argue that we're losing jobs yet. But I mean, what is your view on that? Do you think that what you're building and what you're working on is going to negatively impact people's livelihood? Or do you think that you're helping to advance like technology? How do you view that? Let me give you an example. Um, so in 2015, uh, there was this like ravaging, I think journal, it was either a journal article or some like op-ed by a very prominent person that basically said that, uh, within 10 years, the radiology profession is going to be done. Like, uh, AI is going to take over radiologists, radiologists will be obsolete. Uh, nobody will have to look at images and sort of interpret them and then tell the ordering physician, you know, what's wrong with this person? Cause the AI system will just do that. Um, it's been 10 years, uh, well, almost, uh, radiology, radiology has been basically inundated with many, many applications of AI technology. Uh, one of them being, uh, actually like some of the stuff that I built at my old startup that I used to work at, uh, it's called Rad AI. Check them out. They do are really doing transformative stuff. Basically what they do is they automate the writing of a, a radiology report for radiologists. So they're, they're sitting there and they act like basically the word is copy. Uh, so it's not something AI, and this is like sort of the, the the frame that I always put it in. This is like what I truly believe is that what will happen is individuals who go in and use AI will still keep their jobs. Uh, they will they will be able to work more effectively. They will be able to do more things in the time that they have. Their their lives their lives and like work lives will get easier. They will, however, replace people who keep doing things that they were doing and don't use AI. It's just like any other tool. Uh, if you can be more productive using that tool, you will go in and replace people who. You know, Aren't, aren't using that technology, uh, but this has been always true, right? In any sort of technology that comes out, uh, the sort of the sort of the sort of phrasing that um, that that we used back then was that uh, radiologists who don't use AI will replace will be replaced by radiologists who do use AI. 
pretty honest. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I think that's universal. Uh, same thing, like right now with uh, the, the product itself is actually called Copilot, Microsoft Copilot, which is the sort of assistant tool that helps programmers write code uh, a little bit faster, a little bit easier uh, using an LLM in the loop. Um, that is, allow- is allowing many junior developers who you know maybe haven't seen or has much experience programming be able to go out and program a lot, uh, sort of at, at, at a higher skill level and sort of make less mistakes. Um, and it really is the case that if you want to be a really strong engineer who maybe doesn't have that much experience, if you use uh, an LLM in your workflow, you're going to be outpacing people who aren't. Yeah, it it is just, I mean, it's crazy to have a good response, though, to the view that AI will destroy the millions of jobs that are like, you know, call centers or accounting or you know, jobs that are could become highly automated in an easy way, right? So I guess like whether you're right or wrong, there still will be a, a pretty hard kind of punch that will leave a lot of people out before a lot of people uptake, right? There'll be a gap or it, it, it just seems hard to think that the, the impact would go unnoticed, right? Like it would be a seamless transition. Yeah, I mean, I think it will be noticed. Uh, I've seen some claims is like, uh, there's like there's like these charts where it's like the world GDP and then uh, it's like, fairly like like linear and then in like the 1910s 1920s when the world got electrified you just see this like exponential bump <laughs> yep. um, and i've seen and i've seen some claims that like a continuation of that chart into the 2020s it's like you know these ai systems have become proliferated through all society uh the internet's full of basically a bunch of machines talking to each other generating text generating content uh and everyone's using the AI system to their workflow. And that's sort of maybe this, this next sort of like uh, exponential multiplier to like this multiplier to the exponential that's on this like GDP curve, and it's going to cause another one of these bumps. Um, it's kind of hard to say. Like as somebody who's spent uh, not as much time as many people, but I guess six, seven years now, like studying and then using and applying, and now sort of like building what I think is should be the future of how people use this technology. Uh, I really, I really think that oh, there's a lot of overhype happening, um, and there's definitely negative applications of the technology, but there's a lot of people who are going out and saying that it's going to cause a doomsday, uh, and they're maybe actually making it worse by not highlighting the actual sort of like harms the technology can have. Like you were saying, right? There's there there is the possibility that a lot of jobs which currently exist uh, won't be as as in as high demand. That will cause job losses. So as like a naive, very interested AI person, I like understood like the Terminator kind of mantra of what AI could become. And then I started to dig into like what exactly large language models were doing, right? And I, I kind of landed on like probabilistically finishing our sentences with context, right? In like a really smart yep. way. So where do you think like the Terminator view is coming from? It's it's definitely not from LLMs, right? Machine learning models that could complete paragraphs of text uh, given previous context came fairly after terminator came out in like the 70s 80s um but i, I think there's like uh, this overall goal in ai right which is uh, we want to sort of automate what is intelligence right and i think that is a goal that people who are not sort of tuned into like ai research and ai development actually have a much much better like clear clear outlook for and understanding for than people who are in the weeds working on this stuff because when you're in the weeds working on this stuff, you understand the limitations and how like we are eons away from any system that can do that kind of like multi-hop reasoning that a human can do and sort of quickly ingest information, know when to forget information and be able to sort of make decisions. An LLM can't do that. An LLM has this property where it makes an error, that error accumulates, right? You're a human, you make an error, you don't, that error doesn't forever stay with you, it doesn't accumulate, right? 
Uh, an LLM is a local minima to like what we will see in computers being automated, uh, computers being able to automate more and more intelligent tasks, like intelligence like tasks. Um, really, I think it's just like, like that, that, that is the way an AI, like the idealistic view of an AI system is something that can, you know, auto, automate human ta- like automate human tasks to the extreme, uh, automate human, like augment human intelligence. Uh, but the current paradigm of training deep neural nets and op- of optimizing deep neural nets on large amounts of data uh, is not actually going to get us there. There's been many, many, many people who are much more, much smarter than me who say this. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lacoon is a big, big proponent of uh, LLMs are a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. No. So yeah. I'll. I, I mean, I'm not sure if you spend a lot of time on this, but let, let's keep this going a little bit. I mean, Sam Altman at OpenAI has like tried to like kneecap the growth, like has has called it like you know dangerous, right? Has called for regulation, has called for slowing things down, but he's building the largest LLM. Like, why would he do that unless he wanted like a regulatory uh, box out of everybody else? Like, because obviously, I don't think ChatGPT is going to lead us to Terminators yeah, anytime well, soon, I, to your point. I mean, I mean, to be frank, as, as as somebody who also has a company in the space, like, I, I think you just, you said the exact same, the exact reason. Uh, anyone, everyone can make excuses for like why that's happening. They can use the guise of safety, the guise of whatever. Uh, the reality is, is like, you are first to market with a product that's clearly revolutionary. Uh, you can you've built the, you've built the core technology, uh, but the core technology doesn't actually make money. You have to build verticals over that core technology, and uh, being able to capture the sort of regulatory sphere to stop competitors is a very lucrative way to be able to do that. OpenAI is like a relatively small company. There's only 350 employees, right? Uh, they're 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 quickly with like their plugin system attempting to sort of verticalize the, use, the implementations of these. Like I I really believe that the next few like even now it's it's you see their API prices going down very quickly. What's happening is that selling the outputs of it, it's a tool. Selling the outputs of large language models is not going to be a business very soon. If it's if it's already not a business that's profitable, um, using that system in a downstream application in some vertical, maybe like a copilot for finance or a copilot for radiology. Yeah, that's a, that's something you can make tons of money. That's something you can build businesses with. That's something you can augment people's lives with. Uh, just selling the outputs of an ML model is not a business. <laughs> And you need that right now. No, that, <laughs> no that, that is incredible framing. I mean, honestly, as a VC, I've been struggling with a lot of the decks I see because it's like AI for X. It's a lot of short-term revenue, like with Lenza, you know, tens of millions of dollars, and then it kind of falls off a cliff, right? So, I mean, no, those companies don't really have to raise, but on the flip side, it's hard for them to because there's not a lot of long-term revenue. But what you're saying as a end business model, that is pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's I think it's just it's just the reality. There's there's been a lot of AI companies uh, in the past, I think, six years. I guess there's the, the whole ML infra uh, play that happened in 2017, 2018, so and so forth. Like everyone realized very quickly, you can't make money selling the outputs of ML models. ML models get commoditized very quickly. You have to sell the tooling around them. You have to sell sort of like the data layer. You have to sell the operations layer. Uh, that, that's, that, that If you want to be a business who does it, that's where it is. Uh, cool. The reality. So one last <laughs> business question before we go into some some fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, it is hard to figure out like where a lot of the the future tech and developers and and value will accrue. Whether it's to you know Google introducing Bard, whether it's to Microsoft, right? Whether it's to OpenAI, or whether it's to you know startups like yourself at Nomic, or whether it's to smaller players, right? Do you have a view on where you know value accruals might not be the best question again because this gets all like gray areas? But you know where let's go with value accrual for large versus small startups and AI. Okay, so are you asking just like 
like as investment advice or you're kidding. <laughs> definitely not investment advice i i guess yeah, definitely not warriors would kill me but uh I guess like does Microsoft and Google just dominate here, right? Does OpenAI just dominate? Or are there is there room for, you know, the next wave of thousands of startups and the next unicorn to come from a startup in the AI space? Yeah. I mean, like one sound and true business model that I think has always existed in the past two decades is you take a new technology to an archaic sort of business and with that technology you're able to like auto- automate stuff, make stuff a lot cheaper to do. Uh, and that's how you can make tons of money, right? There's been so many businesses that have done that. Uh, just like revolution, like in the you know '90s, revolution, like bringing like computers to all 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 the, all the existing businesses. Uh, I think in, in the 2010s, it was basically sassifying every 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 existing t- software that was made, right? Uh, I think the 2020s will be adding the ability, like if, if companies are not, most companies have already added generative AI as at least a feature into their existing, into, into, into their existing tool sets. Uh, but generative AI is sort of like really one form of, of one form of AI that people have found very useful because it's this like universal, like text, text to action, basically interface that allows you to do things using human language. Don't need to probe. Um, I think we'll see something very similar where you'll have situations where people who basically knowledge workers who have to dig through tons of information and make decisions based on small pieces of information that uh, that come out of that large corpus of information, being able to do that in a much more efficient way. Uh, and there's probably giant, gigantic vertical businesses to be built around there. Uh, one, of, one of my friends actually from my PhD, uh, he's building out this uh, fin- financial analyst like co-pilot. Uh, they, they're, I'll shout it out, I guess, quote, quote labs. Uh, it, that, that's one thing that really excites me. What they're, what they're doing basically is like allowing you to to be in, a, in, a, in an Excel sheet, but have access to like AI systems, like as, as sort of like an extension of the Excel sheet. Uh, it's like things like that, uh, the kind of things that really excite me in terms of like where the value will accrue. These verticals. I'd love to chat with him. Um, <laughs> definitely would love to love to see what he's up to. All right, cool. Let's go into uh, let's go into some of the fun stuff. So I asked you before the podcast during our prep call, kind of what is one of the most exciting areas in AI that you're interested in what you think people are missing and what you think would be like the biggest next movement. And you told me embeddings. And I honestly don't really understand what that is. Let's dive into what are embeddings and why will they be so important? Yeah. yeah. So I guess the reason I told you that is because I'm sure everyone is probably just tired of hearing of LLMs and what they can do and what they can't do. And there's a million sources where you can go and learn about this stuff. Probably not a good use of your time to talk about it for the end of time. Um, what is cool, however, is sort of the fundamental underlying sort of technology that even powers like a generative AI system, like an LLM. And this is the this is the underlying neural network. That's what an LLM is. And what it does is, like I said earlier, it's this compression technology. It takes a large amount of information and is able to compress it by finding patterns in information and storing those patterns. Um, so the way neural networks sort of operate and sort of talk to each other is through this language of uh, embeddings. So what this means is it allows a computer to understand semantics, not just understand sort of like representations of data from like the bytes and binary. So for example, if I have like an image, right? Uh, if I load it, if I have an image sitting as a file on my computer, uh, it's literally just a giant sequence of uh, of red, green, blue color values. That's what an image is. You see it on your screen. It's a nice, pretty like dog or something. Like this. Um, but the issue with that is if I have a whole folder of those things, right? The computer has no way of knowing like which images have dogs, which images have trees, which images have you know oceans. What an embedding allows you to do, uh, what a neural network which generates that embedding allows you to do, 
is it allows a computer to view that data semantically. So it can be able to, it can, it can manipulate that collection of, let's say, images by going in and saying, ah, I know that all of these images have a dog because the corresponding embedding for those images are all similar, uh, similar, uh, are all similar to each other. Uh, and similar here means it's, it's in a mathematical sense, but I don't want to get too technical. Basically, an, an embedding allows computers to operate on data semantically as opposed to uh, sort of in the, in, in the way they would operate just on, on, a, on the raw bytes. And that's like the true revolution that's happening. When you, use, when you use Google search, when you use any sort of like search engine, for example, that is actually operating on neural network representations of the underlying data you get served out called embeddings. Uh, they are the sort of the, the, the thing powering every, every, every AI system. Like an LLM generates embeddings and based on those embeddings is able to condition how it uh, produces out um, produces out continuous continuations of your text. Uh, and that's the thing I think a lot of people are sort of sort of missing. Uh, every single piece of data in the world in the next five years uh, at any every business is going to be run through a neural network and embedded. And you want to store those embeddings because it allows you to do much more richer interactions over your data. Everyone has tons of data. Nobody can search through it. Uh, how do you do that search? Well, you embed your data and then you can have a computer manipulate semantic. You want to find all the pictures of dogs or all the pieces of text mentioning dogs or all the you know audio clips that you have laying on your system from like your call center transcripts that mention a certain thing. You can do that with embeddings. So is that, I mean, this is probably a dumb question, but like when I pull up, uh, you know, the picture app on my iPhone and I could see like every picture that matches my dad, is that a similar situation to what you're describing? That, that's exactly what they're doing. They take every, they take every image. They have a neural network that's trained to embed the image such that images that are similar get represented similarly by the app, which is called an embedding. And that's the, that's, the, that's the way it works. They find pictures of your dad. Uh, they have the faces of your dad. They have an embedding for that for that picture and the, and the picture of the face of your dad. And then they're able to find similar embedding just by the computer comparing it for the distance between the two embedding vectors. This looks good. So my dad thought I was digging for these pictures on Father's Day, but in reality, they're just, they're all there. Um, makes it easy. So let's go into the impact here. So my naive understanding from your answer is that if all the data in the world is embedded, we could then use that as clean data to train LLMs and make them better. Or sorry, what's the what's the impact of embedding all this data? Uh, the impact of embedding is it allows computers to operate on data cement. It it's a sort of a new way of building software, as opposed to um, like the, it, it's. It's a fundamental tool that allows you to build software in in a way that is more interactive, more akin to for it's how humans experience the world, right? When you go out and you see a picture of a dog or a piece of text mentioning a dog or like an audio clip talking about dogs, you have the concept of a dog. A computer doesn't have that. Those are completely different objects to a computer. Um, and embedding sort of unify that view under, 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 under the same concept. So it's this new generation of how computers are able to interact with the information that are, that are, that are fed into. It's sort of an, ena an enabling technology for a, for a lot of other So the impact the impact the impact is going to be the following: uh, you're going to see systems like in the very same way like you have on your iPhone, all the all the faces being grouped together. You being able to type in you know uh, a certain like like you type in beach and you're able to find like all the beaches immediately in your photos. That sort of technology, those are embeddings deployed by Apple. Um, it, uh, they're likely running servers the server side by Apple. Uh, but every single application as as these embedding models become sourced, every single application is going to be able to uh, go in and leverage it. And that's just like the big companies who have had all of the access to the hardware to be able to trade neural networks that can generate these powerful embeddings. It's pretty that's cool. I think you did I think you did a phenomenal job describing what embeddings are, given how technical they are. Like the ability to not to search and to for computers to deal with data in a in a whole new way through code. I 
I also feel like just putting myself in your position, it's really hard to describe the impacts of that. Like, I don't know what the second order benefits are of, of yeah. having that much power. Yeah. I mean, like, what, 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 are the, what are the impacts of the internet, right? Information can be uh, found and dispersed more easily. Uh, it's technology just like that. Neural, neural networks, this sort of technology that was really enabled and sort of like sp- sp- spread across the world and showed that it's highly powerful in 2012 with like you able to, you being able to represent images and do like image classification for example uh in the past decade like th- this is this is how that technology this is the time period where that technology became possible um you can interact with information in a completely different way uh that's that's that's, that's the core enablement of the technology yeah. that's really cool so for developers it sounds like they have two major benefits now they can use copilot like ai apps to code and build faster and then the in- embeddings offer a new kind of paradigm or is this the embeddings are within the are these two different things or, or one thing um there's they're related things let, i guess let me give you a concrete example of like a thing you can build when you have embeddings that you couldn't really build before so you used to have the so imagine you have a giant corpus of like text maybe like i don't know all of your documents that your company has or like uh, uh, every every sort of sec filing you've pulled offline and you want to go in and sort of find relevant information to a search query in that in that collection of information. What used to happen is there were these like techniques that allowed you to go in and you know you type in your set of words and they would basically go in and look for those similar words in the documents and then pull out examples. So for instance, I type in, I don't know, Microsoft, it would pull me out all the SEC filings that mentioned Microsoft, right? Um, but maybe there are filings that talk about like the technology that Microsoft enables or maybe the Excel or something that you'd also want to get returned there, but you'd never be able to find that because that's a term that's semantically similar to Microsoft, but t- existing existing techniques uh, that were used prior to neural network existing would not enable you to find. What an embedding allows you to do is when a search query comes in, you generate, t- you can get a neural network to generate an embedding for you of the word Microsoft. And then you have an embedding of each of your documents. And instead of going through and saying, hey, there's my word Microsoft in each one of my documents, what you do is you compare the embeddings of your query with the embeddings of all the documents. And now since you have an embedding, those manipulate semantically. So the word the word Excel would be actually very close to the word Microsoft as opposed to being completely different like characters. And that would allow you to improve that retrieval system. But that's just like one example of... Uh, of uh, how no, that's perfect. That, that was a super clear example. Let's take that to the next level, though. I'm not a user searching here for Microsoft's filings, right? I'm an AI model using this new paradigm to pull information, to pull knowledge, to pull context. How much better do the AI models get this within that? Yeah, so like what you're describing is actually probably what you're describing is actually the paradigm that's used right now um, in most LL, LLM powered apps that you've interacted with. Uh, it's this technique called retrieval augmented generation. Where you have an LLM uh, that exists, and that LLM, you know, it's been trained on a bunch of data. It's probably never seen the data that you had internally in your company. And what it does is you ask it a question, and it can generate you an answer. And if it's something very specific about documents, it'll probably make something. Like it'll give it'll give you something. It'll make it up. Uh, what embeddings allow you to do is go in and do a sort of prompting of the model, give additional information about the LLM that would be related to your internal data store. And the way you do that is by you take your question, you embed it, you search your internal data store for semantically similar things to your question, and then give that additional information to the LLM such that it could be more sort of like narrowed down in its responses to things that are factual about the data. So the, these things are being used in deployed. Yep. Got it. So the, the old VLOOKUP for our finance friends, um, pretty similar to 
Yeah. All of that. V, 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 v look up with neural networks. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're taking your quilt friends project and running with it. Um, this is pretty cool. I, I really appreciate the context, Andre. To close out, um, given our audience, I'd like to spend some time on the the overlap between AI and crypto. And I'm not sure if you're a crypto fan. You don't you don't have to be by any means. I, it doesn't matter to me. Um, but I'd love to kind of hear your takes on if you think that there is any overlap between the two worlds or or not. Would also be an interesting answer as well. Yeah, I mean. It's it's hard to say. Like I I'm not somebody who's dived too much into crypto, but there have been a few issues that come up that the concepts behind crypto. So like basically distributed stores of information that are just like auditable and viewable by everyone could help out with when it comes to some of the problems that exist in current AI systems. Um, one of those biggest problems, one of the biggest problems right now, is what's happening with uh, data provenance in AI. So it is the case that every good model that you've interacted with. Uh, online, like ChatGPT, uh, on OpenAI's models, any models that you try, even the open source ones, they've been trained on a bunch of data that is likely in copyright that has been spent by human that has been that has been generated by humans who spent time uh, to make that information, and those neural networks are taking it, interpolating through it, and then giving out outputs that some argue is like stealing the sort of like uh, like uh, like copyright or the or, or or the work of individuals, um, and this is, this is just the reality of the world that's happening right now. But what does that mean in the next five years? What does it mean in a world where content creators have no incentive to make content that would improve the neural networks, the neural networks were trained on that additional content? Because if they make the content, that content is just going to be, you know, slurped up by a big neural network and then their their value has disappeared from the whole pipeline. How do you incentivize people to keep generating, you know, powerful human content that's useful that can be used to train AI systems, but still has incentives to individuals who are uh, generating that content. I think there's some ideas from like uh, from, from, from crypto and blockchain that can be used there to uh, give incentive structure and be able to sort of, when you, for example, use the output of a neural network uh, to uh, solve some sort of problem that makes you money, how do you make sure that the people who generate the data that train the neural network have some sort of way of incentivizing themselves from it? That's pretty cool. So I might be reaching here a little bit, but if I'm a if I'm a creator with data and I want to uh, train a model, but I want the model to like pay me if people use it in an output of some kind, can I embed that this data is mine and then the model knows to eventually pay me back and reference me? Or I might be connecting dots that aren't there. What you said is connecting dots that aren't there, but you hit a really, really good point. It's like, how do you actually practically do this? It's very hard. Uh, there's no way of, if you have an output of a neural network, there's no way of attributing that output to specific data points that it was trained on. Really, what you have to do is you have to have an organization who is going to say like, hey, contribute your data to this pool. We will use it to trade the AI models. And if we sell these AI models, uh, you will get some sort of financial incentive from it. But that obviously is very hard to do. Uh, there's no clear way of, of, of making that work. And this is just not for text, right? I mean, this is like, this is a big thing on on the image side, right? Like, like uh, there's many comp- there's a, a few companies out there that are getting sued right now for releasing and trading models and, and sort of monetizing them. Uh, but they're trading on sort of copyrighted images, for example. Um, That's pretty cool. No, it's, yeah. it is a it is a hard problem. I mean, we've seen some we've seen forays like WorldCoin trying to solve civil resistance, like proving people are human. The idea of like uh, AI mo- models or, or agents using crypto, things along that nature. The one really interesting one I want to ask you about though is the foundational one on alignment, right? Everybody in or, or crypto AI overlap people I've spoken to have always said, "Hey, we should solve alignment on chain, right? It, it should be transparent." 
I don't actually know what that means because like, how do you, you know, how do you account for everybody in the world's biases to build a model in a way that everyone understands it? I, it's just, it seems a little confusing to me and a little utopian. What do you think? Yeah. I don't know. There, there's, there's in the past six months, uh, I think there's been like an exponential rise in the number of people who have dubbed themselves AI experts. Um, and they're drawing a lot of analogies that quite frankly, just like don't, don't exist. Uh, like <laughs> To, to, to do something like that, like, like what, what is the problem of AI based, right? What, what does it mean for an AI model to be based? That means the data it was trained on has certain sort of beliefs or facts ingrained in it that align with the set of beliefs that the trainers of the model wanted to have. Um, that's, what a, that's what a bias is. It's very easy to manipulate that bias. You just change the data the model was trained on. Um, I don't think it requires like this, like a, a grandiose solution like this to solve the problem of AI bias. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that is interesting. Andre, just to close out, um, let our listeners know how they can use Nomec, how they can get involved, any ways to use what you've built in a core interesting yeah, way. Yeah, so there's there's a few things here. Um, so on the GPT for all side, uh, we build this open source ecosystem of large language models that you can run locally on your MacBook. We actually just released today uh, a, a large sort of like uh, acceleration of the ability of the models to run faster on your computer. So like if you have a MacBook Pro, at least 16 gigabytes of, of RAM. You can run 13 billion parameter models really fast. Chat GPT speeds locally on your laptop. Uh, that's gptforall.io. Uh, the other thing is that we're sort of building this like ground up uh, data storage engine for embeddings called Atlas. It allows you to do one thing: is visualizing your embedding. So it allows you to understand the semantic concepts present in your embeddings, whatever, regardless of the neural network that generates them. Um, it's sort of like the place to put your embedding such that you can use them for useful like business things or uh, useful sort of uh, data exploration um, applications. So we kind of do those two things at Nomic. That's incredible. Andre, we're right at the 45 minute mark. I want to thank you so much. You covered literally so much information in a really understandable way as an extremely smart dev. So I really appreciate your time and sharing everything with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. 